If you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's page 996. Uh, we're going to read that in a minute. Um, good to see you all. It feels like I've, I've been away, but I haven't. So it's good to be here anyway. Um, we've got two weeks left in this letter. We've been taking a few weeks to work our way through. Uh, we're just going to look at a few verses today and then round the letter off. Uh, next week so we'll read that in a second just um, special welcome to Alex nice to have you with us this morning friend of, uh, of Mark's um, staying with them hope you got some sleep last night with the baby um, just another quick plug as well next week is our uh, collective celebration so if you're around on the Friday evening it would be great to see you there um, Saturday which is open to anyone and everyone uh, one o'clock at Frontline Centre we're also responsible for bringing some food as well, so I'm going to put that out on Facebook this week just to let you know what we need to bring. Um, but that promises to be a great time together. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he says this to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. We thank you for all that we have already sung this morning that reminds us of who you are, what you have done. And what you are preparing for us in the days to come. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have your word here. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide us into truth. And as you do that, would you make much of the Son? Would you present Jesus to us this morning, Holy Spirit, as one who we would willingly lay our lives down for? One who we would willingly give our, our bodies and our lives as a sacrifice to in response to all that he has done for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son who brings us into your presence. Help us now, we pray. Help us to build one another up. Help us to grow in our likeness of Jesus. And we pray all of these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. There are a few things that are more certain in this world than death. Nice chipper start for us this morning. <laughs> None of us can kind of confidently say, oh, I'm not too sure about that. I'm not convinced that that's, that is a thing or it is coming. I can guarantee you it is coming. Like all of us know that, unfortunately, probably from circumstances in our own lives where we have been to funerals or we have seen funerals, we know that death is the inevitable thing that is coming for us all. Um, every Friday morning, I, I park myself in Polydor, which is a little cafe just over the road. Um, up there and I always get a window seat because I'm nosy and I'm always there first so I can have my pick of the seats and pretty much every week without fail around half nine ten o'clock um, a series of funeral hearses pull up because there's a, a funeral um, parlor just across the road here and they kind of load up the hearse and off they go every week almost without fail just this rhythm every and I'm assuming that happens kind of every day pretty much as well these guys get in the body put it into the hearse off they go to the funeral same thing week after week 
after week. Death keeps coming. And it will come for all of us. And you might be sitting there this morning and thinking, well, so what? Like, I can kind of live this life and it might come at some point and, and, and that's just it. And, well, you might believe that. And if that's the case, there's no particular cause to party because that's kind of the end of all things. But, but if that is the case, then, then there's nothing particularly to be concerned about either. But what we read here, what we just read there in these few verses in Paul's letter to Timothy is that Paul doesn't believe that to be the case. Paul doesn't believe it to be the case that once the body goes in the hearse and goes to the funeral and it goes into the ground, that is the end. He doesn't believe it to be the case that actually there isn't anything to be concerned about when we die because we kind of just vanish into the ether or we just rot away in the ground. Paul believes that there is something awaiting for us after our bodily death. Let me just remind you about the context of this letter. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who is, who is one of his disciples. He's trained him up, he's equipped him, and he's sent him to a church in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. Timothy is trying his best to kind of um, um, govern this church and help it move forward, and he's struggling. Paul is nearing the end of his life. He's actually writing this letter from prison. He's in, he's in chains in Rome, awaiting for his death. And what you see in these few verses, and we'll see next week as we conclude uh, the letter, is Paul just spends a few moments before he signs off to reflect back on his, on his years in ministry. 30 years he's probably been in Christian ministry. He's been teaching, he's been training, he's been planting churches. And now the last part of his ministry is him in chains, in a prison cell, awaiting execution. For him at this moment in his life, it looks like his life is, is, is a drink offering. That's how he describes it in verse 6. And in the eyes of the world who are looking on at Paul in this cell below the ground, this dark cell with his hands and his feet in chains, Paul's life looks pretty pathetic. He's beaten. He's got this, the scars of, of flogging probably on his body. He is in this cold cell far away from home. We'll see next week he's been deserted by many that he would count as his friends. And he is awaiting execution by Rome. Looks like a pretty sad way to end your life. But that isn't how Paul sees it. Let me read to you again verse 6. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. When we read that word departure, like all different things can come to mind. It's interesting, we, we do talk about that when people die. Sometimes you hear people say, oh, he's departed, he's gone. And in some sense, we think he's, he's actually gone, that dead person is gone. But when you think about the other times that we use that word, so when you're waiting for a plane, you're departing, but you're not getting on the plane to die, hopefully. You're, you're going somewhere. Or when you, you set off on a journey and you set your sat now, you're you're departing from your house to go somewhere. Again, hopefully not to die. You're actually going to a destination. For Paul, as he wrote that word, all the, all the kind of connotations for him were, were, were even, even deeper. So that word departure there, kind of originally for him, would have been a picture of, of a farmer taking a load off an ox, kind of taking its weight off. Or a soldier who has is, who is finished a battle and is now striking down the tents or taking off his garments. It isn't a picture of kind of 
uh, uh, finishing and, and non-existence. It is a picture of conclusion, but conclusion as something else begins. So Paul, as he sees his death, he does see it as the conclusion of his life. But he also sees it as the start of something else. You read in the verses below, he sees it as the start as, of a glorious entrance into eternity. Paul doesn't see this life as his end. What you also see in these verses here is that his present and his past are connected to his future. So in verse 6, you see he's talking about his present. He is presently now being poured out as a drink offering. He's presently now waiting for his departure. In verse 7, he then looks to the past. He looks, he looks back and he says, in the past and the days gone by, I've fought a good fight. I've finished a race. I have kept the faith. And then you see this word in verse 8, henceforth. Hands up if you ever use that word. Henceforth. Oh, nice one, Alex. <laughs> there you go. Alex uses it sometimes. It shows you the measure of the man right there. Henceforth. This is a word that most of us hardly ever use. This is a connective word. Paul is connecting verse 6, his present, verse 7, his past, with what is to come in verse 8. And what does he talk about in verse 8? His future. He looks to the future. He says, henceforth, there is a time coming where there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul connects his present reality and what he has done to the past to what is coming in the future. They're not disconnected. He doesn't see his, his past or his life now as inconsequential to what is coming. He sees them as deeply connected. If you've ever read any of Paul's other letters, you'll have kind of heard some of the, some of the um, vocabulary that he's using here before. In 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9, he says this. It's on the screen, so don't um, worry about um, 10 in there. But he describes life as a race. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 uh, to 27, this is what he says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be qualified. You see it in other places as well, this picture of life as a race. Life as a race. And, and when you get to the end, that isn't kind of the completion, the, the end of it. At the end of the race, you receive a prize. He talks about this imperishable wreath an eternal wreath, something that he will receive that will last forever. That word wreath that we just read there in 1 Corinthians is the same word as crown as we see in this letter to Timothy. There is a sense in which Paul sees this life as heading somewhere. And when he reaches that somewhere, he receives something for all eternity. The call in 1 Corinthians and the call here in these few verses from Paul to Timothy is this. Live your life in light of eternity. Live your life in light of eternity. I'm going to share with us just five ways that kind of Paul brings this to bear 
in these passages. But I want us to see as we go through each of them that we are to be people. That was an incredible sneeze. Wow. We are to be people who live our lives in light of eternity. We're going to sing a song later on which has this line in it. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. Live your life in light of eternity. Firstly, you see this, that we should, we should apply an eternal perspective to how we live. Apply an eternal perspective to how you live. Verse 6 again, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Paul sees his life, his present reality in chains in a prison in Rome as, as a drink offering. Now, for us, that kind of doesn't mean much at all, but for him, it meant a lot. Paul is kind of looking back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, had, had different ways of kind of um, um, worshipping God. And what they would often do was give animal sacrifices. And they would burn these sacrifices on an altar. And quite often, the last part of that, that Old Testament sacrifice would be to take a drink and to pour it on the altar. It was part of their sacrificial ceremony. That is how Paul sees his life now. He sees his life as a sacrifice to God. So since Paul was converted, like he wasn't always kind of this, this top um, kind of apostle and disciple and preacher. Paul had a shady past. But at one point in his life, he was converted, converted from a life of rebellion to God into a life of service to God. And from that moment, he gives his whole life to Jesus. He, he literally pours out his life to Jesus in response to, to the eternal life which he has received. He gives his life to Jesus. You might know um, these words from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is Paul writing again another letter to the church in Rome. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, Paul sees his life not as inconsequential now, but he sees his life after his conversion as a life which isn't to be kept to himself, but a life which is to be given to God. Paul says, God, I owe you my life. The life of a disciple is a life of sacrifice. That's what Paul sees. This isn't my own. This isn't my own to decide what I do with it and, and what I give and what I don't give. Paul sees his life as, a, as, a, as part of his worship in giving it back to God. In response to everything that Jesus has done for him, he gives his life back to God. Listen to this in Luke chapter 9. This is Jesus speaking. He says, this is what the life of a disciple looks like. He says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see that? Jesus is saying himself, if you're going to follow me, you, you can't kind of keep your life to yourself. Every day you've got to deny yourself, deny your own passions and desires and pleasures and give yourself to me. That is what Paul is saying as he gives his life as a drink offering. Jesus, I'm giving myself to you. All of my life I'm giving to you as a sacrifice. And you might be sitting there this morning and you think that looks like losing. That looks like defeat. That looks like weakness. 
but it's not. Surrendering your life to God is a life of freedom. That's what the Bible tells us. He wants to give his body as a spiritual sacrifice to God. In response to God, he gives himself. He says, take my life. And that act of giving ourselves to God, our act, that act of sacrificing ourselves for God might feel like suffering for some of us. It might feel, feel, feel like pain for some of us as we deny ourselves and give ourselves to God. But the weight of eternity that is coming is heavy enough to make our present sufferings feel light and momentary. It is. And so we should give ourselves to God, deny ourselves, surrender ourselves to God. Before we move off, just for, just for a minute, in a way of applying this, this to ourselves, I literally just want us just to stop and just to pray. And if you're a believer this morning, just to pray this simple prayer, God, take my life. And do that as an act of surrender. As a way of saying to God, take me, use me. I'm giving my life as a sacrifice to you. So just for a few seconds, let's just close our eyes and you just pray that simple prayer to yourself as a prayer of surrender. thing we see here is Paul encouraging us to apply an eternal perspective to what you fight for verse 7 I have fought the good fight I fought the good fight apply an eternal perspective to what you fight for he, he's given this picture of looking back on his life and he's able to stand at this point and look back and say I fought a good fight the fight there is kind of a picture as he writes that. And again, this doesn't make much sense to us, but, but he's, he's picturing a kind of Greco-Roman wrestling match. Sounds like a great night out to me. I, I'm actually convinced that Paul was some sort of cage fighter or some, he was into that sort of thing. Just the amount of metaphors that he uses, but that's the picture here. It's kind of a wrestling match that, that he's talking about. It's a sports metaphor. And he looks back and he says, the fight that I've engaged with, okay, it wasn't a, a real um, kind of wrestling match. He's looking at his, his life and, and his walk in faith and ministry. He looks back and says, that fight that I've engaged in was a good fight. Now, again, when we read that, we kind of think useful or righteous or a helpful kind of fight. But that isn't, that isn't the root of the word. The root of that word, good, is beautiful. Doesn't that read a little bit different? I have fought the beautiful fight. Isn't that wonderful? He's able to look back at his life and say, the fight that I engaged with was a beautiful fight. The reality is, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are at war. You are. There is an enemy who is out to kill and destroy. Our flesh is rising up within us to try and deceive us. The world is trying to distract us from our holy calling. But we are called into a good fight. Because what we are called to fight for are things that last for eternity. Not worthless things. Not things that will be gone in a moment and, and kind of just, just wither into nothing at the end of all things. We are called to fight for things that last for eternity. 
Specifically, Paul and Timothy here are called to herald the gospel. We are too. We are called to herald the gospel with a hope of eternal fruit. Eternal fruit. So I want to ask us this morning, are we wasting time fighting for things that are worthless? Are we wasting our time fighting with each other? Fighting for things that moth and rust can destroy? When really we should be fighting to make as many disciples as we can during our time on earth. That should take priority over everything else. We should fight against sin which so easily entangles us and distracts us from that mission. We should fight to get the gospel into the hands of those whose eternity literally depends on it. That's what we should be fighting for. So how do we apply this? All of us, just for a moment, let's just sit and look back on this week and think how much of our time have we spent fighting for worthless things, for inconsequential things, in comparison to how much we have fought for our holiness, for purity, and to proclaim the truth that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Let me just put this into perspective. 10 years ago, I had an argument with Elizabeth. I probably had loads of arguments with Elizabeth 10 years ago. And do you know what I can tell you about those arguments? Nothing. I can't remember what they were about. They might have been important in the moment, but 10 years ago, I can't remember. 10 years ago, I shared the gospel with a young man called Roy in Northern Ireland on the Shank Hill estate. He was 15 at the time, a Liverpool supporter. I gave him a Brazilian shirt that I took over, shared the gospel with him. A few months later, I got a letter from the lady who we were working with to say that somehow through just a simple gospel I had shared, he'd been coming to church week after week after week and given his life to Christ. And I'll see him again in eternity. I remember that clear as day 10 years ago because I fought for something that had eternal significance. But the worthless things that I was fighting for mean nothing to me now. Let us apply an eternal perspective to what we fight for, folks. Next, let's apply an eternal perspective to how we run. See that in verse seven, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Paul's able to look back and say, I've finished the race. I've completed the course. He's able to say he's fulfilled his ministry to make disciples. He's able to get to the end and say that I've run well. I've stayed on the course. But you need to know this isn't always the case. Not everyone, not everyone is able to look back and say that. In fact, he writes a letter to the Galatian church and he actually says this. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep, keep you from obeying the truth? The Galatian church were running so well, they were kind of focused on the goal to be God's people, to share the good news of Jesus and they get distracted. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you? Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? See, there are so many distractions that come to us. So many things that come and try and push us off our course. This idea that Paul says that life is a race. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, the calling is to stay on your course. It is to endure. It is to persevere. It is to persist until the end and run well. Not to disqualify yourself, as he said to the church in in Corinth, but to run well. There was a, a funny article I read just a couple of weeks ago of uh, a marathon runner who um, kept on picking up uh, medals. She never kind of won it, but she came second and third 
and completed some incredible marathons, only to be found out a few years later that she'd actually been cycling for some of it. So she'd been starting running with the rest of the group, obviously a little bit slow, and then at some point she managed to acquire a bike and cut out some of the course. And she came second in one of these marathons. Incredible. She got a medal and, and kind of all the accolades at the time, but eventually she was stripped of it all. She was disqualified from it all. You look at the Olympics. You look at the people who receive medals at the end of it. They are people who have completed the course. They are people who have endured. They are people who persist until the end. You know, you know the people who don't get a medal? The people who don't race. That letter to the church in Galatia. The folks there are being distracted. They are trying to navigate through obstacles and they are being hindered. They are being knocked off their course of being able to walk faithfully. Being able to reach the end and look back and say, I ran this race well. So let me ask you this morning, how are you running? Are you distracted? Is Jesus kind of the object of your faith? Are you running towards him? Are you tired? I encourage you this morning, persevere. Don't stop, keep running. And how do we do this? Well, the men looked at this last um, Sunday evening. There's another letter to um, another group of believers. And this letter is called the, the letter uh, to the Hebrews. And this is what the writer says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you are struggling, if you are distracted, if you are facing obstacles in your life and just finding it difficult to be a Christian and to live a life of a Christian, fix your eyes on Jesus. Lift your head. And look at Jesus. Set your gaze on Jesus. Yes, we will face obstacles. But keep your head lifted up. And look towards Jesus. And endure. Persist. And persevere. Apply an eternal perspective to how you run. Apply an eternal perspective to how we steward what we have. So verse 7 again, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and then I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. Now what Paul doesn't mean by this is that he has is, he is kept being faithful. What he actually means is that he has is, he is guarded the faith. He has guarded specifically the people that have been entrusted to him. That's what that means. I've kept the faith. He has guarded the church. He has guarded the things that God has given to him to steward, to defend, to look after. So for Timothy and for Paul, there's a specific thing that they are talking about here. As leaders in God's church, they have been called to defend God's people, protect the church. And Paul gets to the end and he's able to say that. I have kept the faith. That isn't the case for most of us. We aren't given that specific calling. But we are given so much to God and so much to steward for God's glory. We might not have been given a specific gift to lead, lead God's church. But if you're a believer here this morning, you have been given so much by God to steward for his glory. 
And so what would happen if we looked at what we have been given with an eternal perspective? What would happen if we looked at the money that God has given us, the work, that the kind of jobs that God has given us, the homes that God has given us with an eternal perspective? Thinking not, can we, not, not what we can gain now, but what is going to bring fruit for all eternity. Wouldn't that shift how we spend what we spend our money on? Wouldn't that shift how often we open up the doors to our home and invite people in? Wouldn't that shift who we spend our time with? We should, apply, we should apply an eternal perspective to how we steward what we have. Our money, our gifts, our home, our time. Let me just talk about this one specifically, our time. How are you stewarding your time with an eternal perspective? Think about Paul here. This is literally, Paul is on his, he's walking towards his execution. These are the very last things that he is ever going to say. If that was me, I'd be writing to all of my friends and all my family saying, get me out of here. Like, like come to Rome and try and find a way to, to get me off these charges. I'd be trying to defend myself, trying to, to get myself out of these chains. Yet what does Paul devote his time to? Caring and loving for the church. Isn't that beautiful? He gives his life for the church. He is stewarding his time which he's been given by God. Not to try and find his own freedom, but to try and proclaim the gospel of freedom. He gives his time to try and encourage Timothy, his dear son in the faith. How are we stewarding our time with an eternal perspective? Let me give you an example. Um, Elizabeth this week came home from work on Thursday or Friday. And I was actually away at the start of the week. So Elizabeth had the kids on her own, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, a long week. Um, she's, she's not been well, um, tired, not sleeping well. Just wanted to come home on Thursday and Friday and go to bed. But through the day on, was it Thursday? Um, Thursday, a friend of Elizabeth was texting her. Just um, horrible circumstances separated from her husband. And in a, in a terrible state. Couldn't go out the house. Needed to get nappies for the baby. Needed to get food and milk. Needed someone to talk to. And Elizabeth's kind of priority is I want to come home and I want to rest. Braxley, thinking with an eternal perspective, the best thing that she could do in that moment and the thing that she did do was drop, drop her rest, drop coming home and climbing into bed or just having a drink when she gets home. But to go and serve this lady and, and get her some things from the shop and go and have a conversation with her. How differently would our lives look if we looked beyond the moment and looked with an eternal perspective and stewarded our time which is a gift from God, stewarded our time, not to make ourselves more comfortable, but stewarded it for God's glory in a hope that eternal fruit might be born. Lastly, Paul encourages us to apply an eternal perspective to how you fail. Apply an eternal perspective to how you fail. I don't know about you, but the idea of being able to get to the end of my days and look back and say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That is a wonderful thing. And I, and I, and I hope that I'm able to do that. But the reality is, that's very difficult to be able to do that. If God called me home right now and I had to look back on my life, I'd struggle to be able to say that. I'd struggle to be able to say with all genuineness that I have fought a good fight, I've finished the race and I've guarded, I've stewarded everything that God has given me. 
Now it's easy to get despondent and think, oh, I failed so much, God. It's easy to get despondent and look back and think, what have I done with my life? What am I doing now? The reality is, if you're not a Christian, you have every reason to be. You have every reason to be able to to feel despondent as you look back on your life and wonder what you've done with it. In the last few verses of that bit we read there, Paul alludes to the last day. In verse 8. He's looking forward to a day when Jesus will appear. And that last day is actually the start of the eternal days that are to come. And on that last day, that day will be a day, as he says in verse 8, that that God's people will love. We will see Jesus on that last day. And we will love his appearing. We will see Jesus and in Jesus we will see all of our sins, all of our unrighteousness, the ways that we have rebelled against God. We will not see those as weights that we have to carry, but we will see Jesus with his scars already having borne the weight of our sins. When we see Jesus on that last day, we will not see condemnation. We will not see judgment coming towards us. We will see him as the righteous judge, but not judging us with penalty and punishment for our sin, because he will have already borne it for us on the cross. But the day of Jesus appearing will be one that you will not love if you do not know him. The day of Jesus appearing, if you do not know him, will be a day when you will see him as the righteous judge. Not as one who has borne forgiveness for your sins. Not as as one who has paid the penalty for your sin. But the one who will direct judgment towards you. And that day will not be a day when we will love his appearing. We will be filled with fear on that day. As God righteously bestows on us the penalty for our sin. Jesus says in John's gospel, there is a way. There is a way for that day to be a day when you will love his appearing. Jesus says himself, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. If anyone wants to come to the Father, you come through me. So there is a way when you can love his appearing. There is a way where you can look back on your life and not be despondent of what you've done with your time. Not look back with despondence about how you've served yourself instead of serving God. There is a day where you can do that and love his appearing. And the way that you do that is through Jesus. It is through the righteous judge. And the way that you do that is to give your life to him. To surrender yourself and give yourself to him. Because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. If you're a Christian here this morning, it is true that there are ways that you will fail. That you have failed and you are failing so much already now. But the outcome for us on that day is so different. Think about Paul. Paul is able to look back on his life and say with confidence, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. I alluded before that that Paul hasn't got a kind of squeaky clean record. 
that at one point in Paul's life before he was converted, he was literally pushing Christians towards their death. He was signing off on their executions. He was holding the coats for men as they stoned Christians to death. He has the the death of Christian believers on his conscience. Yet he is still able to say on the last day, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. How was he able to do that? With all of that on his record, with all of that in his past. Because his confidence is not found in himself, it is found in the righteous judge that he is looking towards. On that last day, he will stand before the righteous judge who will not give him judgment, but will give him glory. How is that possible? Because Paul's righteousness is not ultimately found in his good deeds. It's not ultimately found in how many people he kind of won to Christ and how many churches he planted. It is found in the judge who is righteous. That's where his righteousness is found. It's his righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. It's the righteous judge's righteousness that we will wear into eternity, not our own. Now, that doesn't mean that we set out to fail. We should strive for righteousness. We should strive to fight and run and keep the faith. But we do that with the great help of our community around us, God's word and his spirit, safe in the knowledge that when we trip and when we stumble, Jesus has already made amends. So on that day when we meet him, we are able to look back and see his righteousness working through us for his glory. Let me just end with this quote from a man called Thomas Brooks who... um, is long dead but sums up perfectly what Paul is calling us into here to live our life in light of eternity this is what Thomas Brooks says Christian remember this that your life is short your duties are many your assistance is great and your reward is sure therefore faint not hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing, and heaven shall make amends for all. We should strive, brothers and sisters. We should strive to fight the good faith, to finish the race, to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith, knowing very well that we will fail in so many ways, but taking comfort that heaven has made amends for all. Let me pray. Jesus, we acknowledge that the death is coming. That is the the outworking of our rebellion to you. But we give you thanks that for those of us who you would call your brothers and sisters, that even though our physical bodies may waste away, we will share all eternity with you. Living in in the light of your righteousness, living without any condemnation or judgment or shame to bear because you've carried all of that for us at the cross. Jesus, we recognize that death is coming, so help us to, to live this life so aware of eternity, so aware with what we have, what you've given us, so aware with how, with how we live our lives and what we fight for, 
so aware on how we run. We need your help. We will fail. We will struggle. We will get distracted. Obstacles will be placed in front of us. So help us by your spirit to run this race well. Help us to present you before ourselves, to make you our focus and the thing that we run towards. But help us to remember grace. Help us to remember that when we do stumble, when we do fail, when we do get distracted, that you have made amends for all. Lord Jesus, help us to to, to give our lives and to respond to you here and now because of what you've done. Pray that we would just know, even right now in this moment, the reality of your perfect life, the death that you died for us on the cross, your resurrection which brings us new life, and that we we would long to live in response to that. Bring strength where it is needed. Bring faith where it is needed to believe. Bring hope as we look towards eternity. Help us to fix our eyes on you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. And we're going to share this meal together, folks. And as we do this, we'll take the bread and we'll take the wine and the juice. We do this looking back and we do this looking forward. So as we look back, we remember Jesus' body, which was broken for us. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, suffered a cruel death. As he hung on the cross, his body was opened. His flesh was torn. He was mocked. He was wrongly accused. He was spat on. He was stripped naked in front of those that he loved. So as we take this bread, we look back and remember Jesus' body broken for us. For rebellious sins. For people who had no plans and no inclination to give our lives to him. And yet he died for us anyway. As we look back, we remember Jesus' blood which was spilled. The Bible says that Jesus' blood was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we look back at the cross with hope. With hope that our sins have been dealt with. Our judgment and the wrath that is due for us has all been taken by Jesus. So we take this meal looking back with thanksgiving, with celebration. For Jesus' perfect life, his death. And in great celebration of three days after he died, he rose again. And as he rose again, he was able to promise us eternal life. He was able to show us that our sin had been defeated. Death had been defeated. So we take this meal looking back in celebration, but we also take it looking forward. To the day when we know that Jesus will return and gather all of his people to himself. And we will rule and reign with him for all eternity. And in that time there will be perfect peace. There will be no more pain. There will be no more struggle against sin. That day is coming folks. So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to come up and take this meal as a celebration. Take this with hope in your hearts that your sin has been dealt with. That there is an eternal hope coming for you. Take this time to kind of confess of your sin as well, acknowledging that we do still struggle with sin. 
giving thanks that he's forgiven every single one. And take this moment, if you want to, to pray with someone. This is a time where we care for one another. So if you want to share this meal with someone that you've come with, please do that. Pray with one another. We've got time to do that. Before we do, let me just pray and give thanks. And when you're ready, um, come up and take a meal. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have an eternity to look forward to. Lord Jesus, we thank you for those of us that are yours. We will love your appearing on that day. That we will have nothing to fear. We thank you that that is only possible because you've dealt with us. Thank you for your perfect life. Thank you for your suffering on the cross. Thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you that every single one of our sins and all of the shame, all of the guilt that comes with our sin was laid upon us. And you absorbed all of the wrath that was coming towards us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that three days later you rose again, showing that you had defeated sin, you had defeated death. Showing that you are able to give us eternal life. And we look forward to that day. Give us hope in our hearts now as we share this meal. Holy Spirit, give us strength where we are weak. Help us to be honest with ourselves as we confess of our sin. Humble us, please, Lord Jesus. So we thank you for this bread. We thank you for this juice, this wine, and all that it causes us to remember. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray.